Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right. You know, I started this podcast actually right as the pandemic landed in our lives. I had the sense that a seismic change was upon us, and I wanted to capture like first impressions of big thinkers. I want to know like where do they see us headed, and can we steer, and and how would we steer? Like how can we move as as the world moves more rapidly? How can we move it in a good direction? And so, of course, the one of the first people I talked to was my friend Hazel Henderson. And she, she taught and spoke about uh, Conscious Money, wrote, you know, she wrote many books, Conscious Money, Natural Systems, Science-Based Investing, A World Run on the Sun, and On the Golden Rule. And so Hazel just went virtual, which is her term for leaving her body. And to me, it feels like she went nova. She, you know, that her, her just a buoyant spirit and her like, penetrating culture hacking mind is now sort of in the universe and available to anybody who wants it, which of course I certainly do. And uh, she called me to say goodbye just two weeks before she actually went virtual. In the course of it, she gave me my new life motto. Um, She said, it's going to be a shit show for the next five years. Just tell the truth and enjoy your life. I called this first set of conversations and interviews that I did the Covita conversations. Covita, of course, for COVID, but Covita, living together. Like we're gonna go through this, whatever the shit show is, we're gonna go through it together. So I'm pleased to have this conversation with Hazel to share with you as she goes out and out and out into the universe. Enjoy. Okay, everybody, here we are for another Covida conversation. It's I uh, I love the name Covida. We're we're actually in this together, life together in a time of pandemic. Yeah. And I'm here with my friend Hazel Henderson, my friend of many, many years. Um, we have a mutual admiration society. I think she, I'm writer than she is about, but she actually, we both love each other. And um, I've asked Hazel to reflect uh for just about 15, 20 minutes, you know, something short that we can, we can chew on about what, what is coming alive in this moment of uh, pandemic, sequester uh, virus. What are we learning? What are we seeing in this moment that we can nurture and we can notice nurture and, you know, in some way bottle for the future because there'll be a time after pandemic. Um, and we really, it's possible we'll go back to business as unusual <laughs> as it was, but maybe we're going to go forward. And so what are we going to go forward? Uh, what is the promising things that we see now that we can go forward into? So with that introduction, I'm going to turn it over to Hazel. Hello. Well, thank you, Vicki. And everything you said, um, I um, endorse 100%. You know, we are a mutual admiration society. And we've been around together for a long, long time. And basically, uh, I got into all of this uh, kind of uh, trying to understand how the planet functions um, and then began looking at how the human society had ended up, you know, colonizing the entire planet and uh, uh, sort of extincting other species and, and putting those two things together. 
Um, uh, I wrote a book back in 1981 called The Politics of the Solar Age. And um, nobody, of course, knew anything about what I was talking about. And that book uh, was, uh, was almost, it, it was reviewed very well in the New York Times and in New Scientist. And it's now in 800 libraries in 20 languages, you know, uh, because uh, now we are beginning to realize, many of us, that the planet now um, is our programmed learning environment for we humans. And the planet is teaching us all the lessons about our unsustainable ways of life, ways of being, um, the individualism, the, eg you know, the egotism, the competition, the, all of the, um, the, the kind of economy um, and the unsustainable technologies. You know, I don't have to go into all the details. And so uh, it seems to me right now that the, what's happening um, is this, this kind of a paradigm uh, contest going on um, between those of us who see a renewable future beyond fossil fuels and nuclear power, um, a more localized um, and um, uh, earth-based uh, kind of economy worldwide, where we connect um, a lot uh, with our wonderful communications technology. Um, we share recipes rather than shipping goods around. We don't ship cakes and cookies. We ship the recipes. And so uh, I, I see a huge opportunity um, in this latest lesson that the planet's teaching us. And, uh, you know, uh, if the people who want to go back to the, quote, business as usual, 19th century type of economy, um, the way Trump and uh, many of uh, the business community does at the moment, what I think will happen is that planet Earth will just create one more crisis after another. Um, and it'll be floods and fires and sea level rise and you name it. And uh, uh, the collapse of the food supply, uh, another virus, uh, you know, more and more. Uh, and and the, it will go on until they learn that the planet, that nature's in charge. And, you know, you cannot um, override uh, nature's principles for very long. And that's the main lesson, I think. And the, uh, the webinar we had last week, uh, I was just sort of summarizing what uh, are the two lessons that we can implement right now that nature's telling us? Well, one is don't cut down trees. And the other is uh, don't kill animals and trade them and eat them. And those are the two main reasons that we have this particular pandemic. And that is, you know, all, all of the, um, when, uh, when we overstress the uh, environment and uh, cut down forests, then that means that you release all of these uh, uh, organisms that were safely um, enfolded in that way. And at the same time, if you have an economy 
which creates a tremendous amount of poverty and hunger, then uh, people go in and kill bushmeat, whether it's monkeys or rats or bats or whatever, and uh, there you are. You've you've got uh, this transition to uh, the human food supply. So, so those two lessons are really pretty simple. And and then uh, I began to discuss, and I've been doing a lot on this now. I've put a few things up on our website, ethicalmarkets.com. What we call our latest headlines um, about uh, the, the the taboo subject. Um, that we haven't been able to fully discuss until almost recent, you know, in the last couple of days. And that is um, the, the current medical industrial paradigm is declaring war on this virus. And that the, uh, because we didn't uh, properly fund our public health systems and all of the uh, cutting, the budget cutting, and the misunderstanding about money. Um, one of the good things that's happened now is we all now understand that there's no shortage of money. Not, not at all. And we see all of the central banks in the world printing it as fast as they can. And those people in the Congress passing these huge quote unquote stimulus bills and a lot of them used to say, oh, "Well, where's the money coming from? Oh dear, you know we uh, we've got we've got to balance the budget." And blah blah blah. And now they're suddenly saying, "No, no, no! I mean, is it three billion, two bit, two trillion? Let's get it out there!" You know. So we've gone from uh, we've we've gone from uh, budget deficits and cutting public services and austerity to helicopter money in the matter of a week. So that's the encouraging thing. Humans actually can change their minds and actually can learn when they are stressed enough. And so that's, uh, that's and then the other thing uh, is that uh, the whole idea has been that uh, we, because we haven't done enough testing, uh, everybody has to be on lockdown. All 330 million of us have to be on lockdown. And of course, it wouldn't have been necessary if we've had the testing in place. But the thing we need to do now, in my view, is we have to start testing in this new way that we're now allowed to talk about, apparently. And that is doing very simple blood test, which is a little finger stick and uh, you test whether the person has, had an, has antibodies, which says that they've had the virus and they don't even know that they've had it because they've been asymptomatic. Mm -hmm. And the new number now um, on, a, 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 on CNN, my official you know, surgeon in residence, is that he estimated that 25% of the American population has either had it and didn't know about it, or has it right now um, and is surviving. And basically all those people will be immune. And so then the whole thing becomes, um, even if the immunity, many people think the immunity 
to that particular virus will last a lifetime. But even if the immunity only lasts for six months or a year, it means that all of those people can go back into work. And um, we can have the beginnings of a more normal life. And the new uh, thing to do um, instead of locking up all 330 million of us, all we need to do is to shelter in place the 30% of us who are like me, over 70, and those who have serious pre-existing conditions. And isn't it a lot easier to protect and shelter 30 million people than all 330 million of us? And it's only because we were left with no options that we got into this rather unbelievable situation. And as you and I were talking about that, uh, at what point um, does the mental cruelty um, of, the, um, of this policy of everybody having to be locked away and losing their jobs, uh, uh, at what point does that become um, untenable? That, you know, whether it's domestic violence or whether it's depression or whether it's the sheer terror of all of these working people who've lost their, their livelihoods and don't know how they're going to pay the rent or are they going to be homeless? I mean, the mental anguish that this is putting mostly poorer people through um, is pretty unconscionable if there's another way of doing it. Right. Right. So it's almost like our system itself in so many ways, what you're saying is the, the narrative and the structures that it creates the worldview and the worldviews minions in terms of banking, finance laws that worldview has is is almost caused the virus, and in the sense that this is a worldview virus, and that the virus is unraveling something, and part of our suffering really is in our lockdown is that it could have been different with a different worldview. I mean, the virus may have come or may not, but it could have been different. Yes. Yeah. So what can be different? What, what, you know, if we're going to, we're going to have some building blocks for something new coming out of this, what would be the building blocks? Well, the building blocks are very much similar to the Green New Deal. Let's face it, you know, and there's a huge impetus in the Congress, as well as in the European Union, where they call it the Green Deal. Everybody realizes, oh, I see. If money isn't scarce, why mm -hmm. wouldn't we print the money and invest it in our future. Invest it in LED lighting and electric cars and, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, um, retrofitting all of our public buildings and doing uh, Medicare for all and cutting off the student debt so that the kids can have a future. And why wouldn't we do all of those things? Now we know that there's no shortage of money. Right. And so this next stimulus, because, you know, we've had, what, three now. And uh, the next one they're talking about <laughs> is going to be about the Green New Deal. <laughs> Everybody's talking about infrastructure. 
Right. Um, and it can't be um, going back to the past. It's got to be green infrastructure. Right. And, and it's got to be, um, of course, um, provide, it's got to be a just transition so that all those people through no fault of their own who lost their jobs, whether it's in coal or whether people who've lost their jobs because of this lockdown, um, those people, of course, um, have to be um, helped through this thing um, to take their place in the new uh, economy. And I think that what the people um, who, who've been promoting the New Deal were trying to say all along is exactly this whole thing about money. And what they were saying is, do you really imagine that Franklin Roosevelt, when he put together the New Deal, he didn't have to pass a hat around and have people put their tax money in before he could invest in the Hoover Dam or whatever. It's done by government guarantee. It's done by floating bonds. And it's done basically by printing money. Right. And if he hadn't done it that way, Los Angeles would still be a village. Right. You know? And, and so people uh, just have to understand. The same thing, just imagine with um, uh, President Kennedy in the moonshot. I mean, if he had actually said, oh, well, we have to collect all the taxes before we can put the city of Houston onto the map and make it into the, you know, ground central for the... I mean... All, all he did was announce that target and then every, the, the rest of the economy falls in behind and everybody knows what to do. And, and so I have uh, a lot of hope um, that this uh, crisis uh, is big enough um, to conform to what always has been my model. And that is that in human societies, you have breakdowns of all of these unsustainable activities and the breakdowns create the breakthroughs and drive the breakthroughs because right. only when we have a big breakdown and get kicked in the ass um, do human beings change. Wow. So, so help me out here because... Um, isn't there an assumption behind the kind of infrastructure project projects from the, the New Deal or the Moonshot? There's always an assumption that it's kicking over um, a, uh, a financial flow. You know, that it's kicking over something that will actually expand the economy so that the whatever the, the so that it's not diluting the money. It's not just like flooding money out and creating an inflationary um, well, experience. Yeah, and, and that was the other mantra um, of the uh, austerity crowd, you know, and the balanced budget crowd. They didn't understand that you, when you um, increase the money supply, as long as you are investing it, in actual productive new uh, um, uh, structures, there isn't any inflation. But if the way they've done it in the past was just, oh, well, we'll give everybody a tax cut. And then the tax cut 
uh, people don't spend the money into the economy. Um, they simply, it simply goes into assets. And so you have asset inflation and basically nothing in the economy gets moving. Right. And so that, that's the secret, um, is making sure that uh, the money you print um, goes, doesn't go into buying toxic mortgage packages and all kinds of dud loans and st or, or tax cuts for companies to buy up their own stock or, or whatever, um, which keeps it in the old financial loop. Instead of that, you put it out into the real economy. And as long as it goes to productive goods and services and employs people in useful activities, you don't have any inflation. And the best example, now my dear friend, uh, Ellen Brown, she's just done another fabulous article for us. And uh, uh, it's called, Did the Fed Just Get Nationalized? <laughs> mm. and, you see, there was always this so-called independence of the Fed, which was always a mirage, really. Right. Um, but now they've realized that the only way to pump the money out fast enough to prevent, to create enough purchasing power to prevent a deep depression is that they now need Treasury and the Fed to get together and um, work in tandem uh, to make sure that all this money they're printing goes to actual real enterprises and to re-employ real people and invest in real uh, productive goods and services. And, right. uh, and this is what Abe has done in Japan. And there's no way they get their inflation rate up to even the 2% of their target. They are still in deflation. And the problem in a situation like this for our economy is that we'll sink into continued deflation. Right. So, so how does how does state banking um, roll? I mean, I understand what you're saying is that it's not that you print money; it's where you put the the new money. Yes. Such that it creates. Um, it doesn't, it creates as many jobs as possible, not winking out of existence and creates new opportunities for work. Um, and it possibly creates like a, a, even a, a new medical system. It creates a, you know, it actually, this money can create, but it has to be placed correctly. It, it can't be, be placed here. into old industries, you know, and, and now it seems like it's being placed into the fossil fuel industry yes. and to, you know, the pipeline industry. So, I mean, and we can just count on our president to do everything wrong. We can just look at what he's yes. doing and sort of see the, see the, the outline of, of what has to happen. There's the temptation to bail out all the incumbent industries that have, you know, bought politicians. Um, that that is the big danger. So that's the the paradigm of the past, and it will be a struggle um, between those folks who want to revive the 19th century and keep all of their vested interests and their tax breaks and everything else, um, or whether we are willing to invest in an entirely new kind of economy with electrified public transportation 
and LED lighting and all of the efficiency uh, that our new technologies provide, you know, the circular economy, where companies will be like, I've got an investment, um, actually it's stock options, in a company which is a typical of this new circular economy, um, which will take any kind of cruddy waste stream and uh, through good science turns it into useful products and services, you know, and so that we're never using any more of the earth's resources, we're simply re upscaling and upcycling the resources that have heretofore been wasted. And, and so um, there's no reason whatsoever that we can't build a new public health oriented medical system based on prevention, that we can't build a more sustainable food system uh, beyond the five um, monocultured crops uh, that we currently are traded in by commodity traders and right. that are really bad for us and right. all of these meat diets. And, uh, and so, you know, all of this is so eminently doable. I mean, the shift but to plant-based right. foods and beverages, um, which is now um, double-digit growth all last year with all of the startup companies and the, the group I've been working with, which is a consortium of investors who happen to be animal rights people and vegans and vegetarians from around the world. And they have 16 trillion of AUM, uh, assets under management. They're the ones that are funding all of these new startup companies, you know, oat milk and uh, soy milk and whatever. And they're also shorting the 16 big meat producing companies because they say we can no longer afford to kill and factory raise uh, animals. It's, it's destroying the antibiotics which we need. It's unhealthy. It creates 15% of all of our greenhouse gases and it's causing heart disease and diabetes. I mean, this is just a no brainer. So, so here's here's what I'm taking away from this because I don't I don't want to overtake your time. It's it's that in this moment of pandemic, we need to dream way bigger, way bigger, yeah, way bigger. If we say, okay, money is not the choke point, but but how it is spent for the kind of prosperity we want in the future. Prosper is pro esperare, which is hopeful. You know, what, that, that we may have, we may not have the entire, um, you know, we don't have all the paints, we don't have all the paintbrushes, but we have enough paint and paintbrushes to paint on the canvas, just like you're doing right now. Something that, that is so possible given that we've proven that money is not scarce, right. but it has to be placed where it's going to create the kind of prosperity we want. And that also gives all of us, I mean, 
people who are not you easily, you know, have to think through the, the sort of this generative economic system. Um, but it gives us something really to chew on. I mean, I would say everybody should go to ethicalmarkets.com, right? <laughs> dot, dot, not Nettercom. Netter, dot, net, dot com. Go ethicalmarkets.com and just, just read. And, but read with this question of what is the biggest picture I can paint? Yeah, yeah. Of what's possible in the future. Yes, there's going to be suffering and there's a lot of suffering. Yes, people are going to die. There's going to be a lot of that. But people mm -hmm. die, people die. You know, that's sort of like a part of the design, you know. So, so, so to have compassion in the short term for the suffering, but to be bold in your imagination in the in the in the sort of mid-ground vision it's not like oh it'll all be better when i go to heaven but it's like there's a possibility here because because money has been released yes and this is so easy really uh when when you realize that um uh, there's a group we work with in london and now in brussels as well called positive money and uh, they produced a book last year, which I did a review of, called A Green Bank of England. And they pointed out that the Bank of England could, with the stroke of a pen, change its algorithm. And instead of just printing money and have it go back um, into the financial system, which is what happens if you don't do anything positive, um, instead of that, they pointed out that they could do, the Bank of England could do a green new deal. And they could say, okay, we're printing this money and here's where it has to go. You know, it, it has to go to building out a wind generator. For all right, of right, it has right. to go, you know, to beefing up the National Health Service. It has to go to providing... Um, Helicopter money, yes. You know, uh, this is a guaranteed income for the short term right. so that everybody can reposition themselves. And I got in touch with them last week and they've opened an office in Brussels. And this is the coup. It's on our website. They went to Christian, Christine Lagarde. Right. Taken over at the ECB. And they got an appointment with her took the book about the Green Bank of England and said, look, um, the EU wants to do a green deal and we need the ECB to, when it's um, buying up all these bonds because she's picking up right where Mario Draghi left off and said, God, it's to do whatever we have to do, whatever it takes, we'll buy all the dud bonds of everybody if we have to. And so, they had an appointment with her, and she has promised to uh, bring forth to the G20 and the, the EU the whole idea of directing the money printing toward building a positive, productive this is infrastructure. Yeah, this is this is so exciting. Whenever I talk to you, it feels like all of this stuff is easy and obvious and we'll just do it. And, um, but, but in a way it's like we can work for it practically in some way, but we can, our imagination is a powerhouse tool 
and we yeah. should never let it be occupied by the uh, assumption that right. the money and power holders are going to get grab onto the situation which they are we know this yeah. and they, that they will once again win and i know i have become quite exhausted with um holding a positive vision in the face of an implacable system but yeah. i think right now because of the printing of money things are loosened up and we can um, raise that up. Yeah. So anyway, is there one, is there something that you would like to say in closing? So we, we have a nice little package. Yes. Well, you know, I've been talking to many of my author friends who are of my vintage and your vintage, and we've been all talking together about the wonderful, wonderful lives that we've led and that we have kind of lived through uh, the fantasy land um, last expression of the unsustainable kind of economy and we've benefited from it and we have no fear um, of death and even though um, I've been alone here for two weeks, if I got sick, I would probably die alone. Nobody would know, you know. And I, I feel I've almost gone virtual anyway because everything I do is online, you know. Yeah. And so uh, what we've been talking about together is making sure that we have do not resuscitate um, those little yellow things you have around your neck uh, because I don't want to be taken to a hospital. I don't want to be part of the medical industrial complex. And hospitals are probably the most dangerous places in the world right now. And uh, basically, um, uh, you know, uh, I'm perfectly happy um, with the life I've led. And, uh, and we were all sharing that and, uh, and feeling that... Uh, the, the kind of medical system that we have at the moment, the profit-driven medical system, uh, it turns all of these um, very elderly people um, that are in nursing homes um, into profit centers. It's terrible. Uh, and, you know, it's just keeping these poor old... I mean, I know this happened with my late husband. Uh, and he had to end up in the last two years of his life in a nursing home. And every, I went to see him every day and he used to say, oh, I'm so, I really just want to go. I've had a wonderful life. I just want to go, you know. And, and the way we've set it up now, we're so, the medical system is all built on the idea of fear of death. Well, death is part of life. And, uh, and I remember when I was a kid growing up in England, um, the my parents and all of the parents um, would send us kids to measles parties, mumps parties, whooping cough parties. There was no vaccinations in those days. And the idea was all the kids had to have full immunity uh, by the time they were five so that they could go into school. And, you know, this virus uh, is not... Uh, most people survive this virus. And if you look at the, the, the death figures, say, in Italy, 
about 95% of the deaths in Italy were people over 70 with a very serious pre-existing um, health conditions. And, and so for most people, um, they're going to get over this, they're going to be immune. And in all of human history, that's the way pandemics have subsided is that a percentage of the population becomes immune. And we cannot face up to the idea that we're just a biological species like all the other biological species. And germs and viruses are just part of our lives. Always will be. Right. So important. We're part of nature and that what comes along with it is viruses, you know, and what also comes along with it is is death, and and to yes. be completely, I mean, as you are, you know, the idea of going virtual to be so reconciled with your death that that's something that's not the issue at the moment. And the other part of it is that herd immunity will come, will. and life goes on, and there's going to be lots of future ahead it's you and i might not be in it but there's going to be lots ahead and we've laid as as good as we could we've laid some some stepping stones and that this talk is one of them and i want to thank you so much hazel i could oh. listen to you forever and i don't want you to go virtual at all but anyway oh, i, I wish you I well I really wish you well. I wish you, I wish you well, and we should. You and I should get on the horn with, or get on, on Zoom with Elizabeth. Yeah. Will Will you do one of my webinars? I'm doing a whole series of webinars. Yeah, yeah. sure. Happy to do oh, that. Oh, good, wonderful. I'll be in touch with you on okay. that. Okay, love you. Mm. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five star review, so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrood, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.